Good evening. You know, a little boy disobeyed his mother, and as punishment, she made him sit in the corner and not say a word. And after some time passed, she asked him, have you learned your lesson? And in a tone of defiance, he said to her, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. We've all been there, haven't we? Sitting on the outside, but standing on the inside. If I were to ask you, what is the hardest doctrine of the Bible? What would your answer be? Certainly marriage, divorce, remarriage, that seems to be a difficult doctrine to discern. Maybe the concept of the Trinity really kind of depends on whether you're asking what's the hardest doctrine to obey or the hardest doctrine to understand. But I would suggest that the topic we're discussing tonight may be the hardest concept in the Bible for us to grasp. Maybe the hardest to apply. And yet, have you noticed how submissiveness permeates virtually every page of the Bible? You cannot be faithful without giving up and giving in, which may explain why so many people avoid Christianity. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13, it reads, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This text is the answer to the anti-authority sentiment. It gives us a mode of operation for every sphere of life. And maybe you're thinking, I was afraid you're going to say that, Chris. I think it's rather easy for us to understand as children of God that we are to submit to his will. We, we get that. We understand that. But submit yourselves to every human institution. I mean, come on, really? Surely God's not serious here. Now, we don't have a king, and so maybe we let ourselves off the hook by saying, well, you know, we don't really live in the same times as they did. But consider Peter's words as applied to our current day and age. Submit yourselves to the President of the United States. Submit yourselves to Congress, to Senate, to the governor, to the state legislature, to the state police, to the local police, to the sheriff, his deputies, the school principal, and so on. The list could keep going to the point that you almost want to gag. Maybe you've gagged already. But the truth is, all of us live under multiple layers of authority. And it is very likely that we won't care for some of the people in charge or the laws that they pass. There will always be leaders that we don't trust, that we don't like, taxes that we don't want to pay. So what then? And Peter's answer is pretty simple. Submit. Right now, some of you are thinking, Chris, I don't like where this is heading. <laughs> and I hear you. This is such an anti-American concept. But stay with me, because the goal is not to use the Bible to confirm your previously held convictions, your personal prejudices, or your ideologies. The goal is to come to the true meaning of what God is trying to get across. And there are a couple of reasons why Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes these words. One is an inner reason, and the other is an outer reason. 
Now, the inner reason is set forth in the phrase, for the Lord's sake. There is a direct connection with those who have authority over us and the ultimate authority, which is God. Submission to authority is really an aspect of our submission to Christ. The reason why the word submission makes our skin crawl is perhaps because we haven't fully grasped the depth and the breadth of what it really means. You can go back to Ephesians chapter 5 and Paul's words there concerning marriage. And in verse 22 and following, he writes, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, this verse doesn't typically set well with some people, especially women. And on the surface, I guess I get it. I mean, as a result, Paul and his words have been viewed as misogynistic and chauvinistic. But instead of allowing Paul's words to make your blood boil, stay calm and study on. Submission is gender neutral. Notice Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. You know, we often get caught up and wrapped up in the, uh, in the wives being subject to their husband's part, but she's not the only one who is to, who is to be in subjection. While God established leadership within the home and within the church, with the male, he never intended the man to work alone. The husband, the man is not the boss, he's not the dictator, he's, he's the head, and headship involves this. It involves love, sacrifice, nourishing, and cherishing. Paul exhorts husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ display his love for the church? He didn't just mouth the words, I love you. He didn't just send the church flowers. He gave himself up for her. He sacrificed. He gave his life for the church. He purchased it member by member with his own blood. What are we sacrificing in our marriages? Are we willing to give of our precious time? Are we willing to sacrifice our pride? Are we willing to give up an insignificant argument? Are we willing to remove ourselves from the equation and to serve God and our spouse? So men, if your idea of submission is that your wife has to do whatever you say, then your definition is completely unbiblical. And women, if your idea of submission is that you have to give up your dignity and your rights and be the inferior being, then your definition is unbiblical as well. So let's not twist Paul's words or assume that men are the boss and women are just the servants. You see, this, this isn't about who's better than whom. It's not about who's stronger than whom, or it's not about who gets, all of, gets to call all the shots or who has to obey. This isn't even about who wears the pants in the family. And this isn't about a woman's rights versus a man's control over her. This has nothing to do with the value or the worth of the woman. This is about completeness. And you can go back and read Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 to see this. But headship and submission are distinctions in function and responsibility. Yes, there is a giving up of yourself when it comes to submission. There is a loss of self, but such a loss is not defeat. Rather, it's victory. Husband and wife both live in submission. Husbands must subject their, themselves to the Lord just as Christ 
subjected himself to God, and wives subject themselves to their husbands as to the Lord, and by doing so, they are placing their well-being in his hands. You can see that this is not about him ruling over a woman or having authority to tell a woman what to do. This has everything to do with the husband nourishing and cherishing and encouraging and sanctifying his wife. And wives, it has everything to do with you letting him lead. Now, Likewise, both husbands and wives, all men, all women, every citizen must submit to the authorities that are over them, as Peter said, for the Lord's sake. And the inner reason being that God commands the submission and God established all human authority. That's the inner reason. So now you turn to the outer reason, and for that we go to Romans chapter 13. Beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, what we typically pull out of this passage is, well, you have to obey the laws of the land. And that's really where we start and stop. That's it. That's really the only thing we glean from this passage. But what this passage is actually getting at and what the big idea revolves around is submission. It's about placing yourself under authority and oversight of the ruling authorities. And this is not just about action. This is an attitude of the heart that says, you're in charge and I'm not, therefore I will respect your judgment. You know what, before we go any further... Let's get some historical context, because if we are going to truly understand a passage, we have to understand what was going on around the time that it was written. And Paul writes this letter to the Romans in the mid-50s AD. The Christians he is writing to had just witnessed a new emperor rise to power, and that emperor's name was Nero. To say that Nero was cruel and ruthless would be a huge understatement. Eight years after this letter was written, a large fire broke out in Rome, and Nero accused the Christians of setting the fire. He blamed the Christians to deflect accusations that he actually started the fire so that he could have room to expand his palace. However, a false accusation was just the tip of the iceberg. Some Christians were wrapped in animal skin and fed to dogs. Some were wrapped in pitch and put on stakes to light the night. This is the government that Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 13. This is the government of which Paul commands Christians to submit to. It's not American democracy. 
This is an oppressive government, one led by a ruthless tyrant who was persecuting God's people. And yet Paul says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. But all of this must be understood in light of what comes before it. Namely, the chapter that comes before Romans chapter 13, which obviously would be Romans chapter 12. And the theme of Romans chapter 12 is that Christians are to be a peaceable people. Though they may face persecution, though they may be mocked and ridiculed and threatened or even put to death, Paul says, be patient in tribulation. That's verse 12. He says, bless those who persecute you. Do not repay evil for evil. Give your enemies food and drink. Notice verse 19 of Romans chapter 12. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But no sooner does Paul tell Christians not to take their own revenge that he follows it in Romans 13, 4 with the words, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So wait a minute. God is using Rome as his avenger? I mean, is that what Paul is saying? Rome and its cruel and ruthless dictator are carrying out God's ordained purpose? Well, if that's the case, that's really not unprecedented, right? When you consider the Old Testament, God often used used wicked empires like Babylon and and Assyria and Egypt, etc. to carry out his divine purpose. Paul confirms that God was doing the same with the Roman Empire. He does this with every nation. But here's what we must keep in mind. And this is an important point to remember. God is not sanctioning Nero's rule. He's not suggesting that the Caesar is running a legitimate government. This is a message to Christians living under an oppressive government, and the message is clear. Pay taxes, don't resist, because Rome is not your home anyway. Your citizenship is in heaven. Now, if you're like me, You read Romans chapter 13, and once you understand the message based on the proper context, you're left probably with more questions than answers. For instance, the Bible is littered with examples of God's people disobeying the civil government, right? You see it over and over again. When the king of Egypt commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill all the baby boys born to the Israelites, they disobeyed. They did not carry out the order. And scripture even notes that God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew strong. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the golden image that was set up by King Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result, they were thrown into the fiery furnace and God did not let them burn up as punishment because he disobeyed or because they disobeyed the ruling authorities. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because he did not obey the king's edict. Peter and John were arrested for preaching in the name of Jesus. When the Jewish authorities commanded them to stop, they answered, But Peter and John said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. And then in Acts chapter 5, we see that they were arrested again. The high priest charges them to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. But Peter replies with these words, We must obey God rather than men. And right there, Right there is the key to really making sense of all of this. 
This is the clarity and the confusion. We must obey God rather than men. The fact that God has ordained the position of authority does not mean that all authority should be obeyed. At the end of the day, the criterion for right and wrong is not whether a ruling authority commands it, but whether God commands it. And when my submission to the government puts me at odds with the commands of God, then like Peter and the apostles, I must obey God rather than men. We might say it like this. It is right to resist what God has appointed in order to obey what God has commanded, if that makes sense. Of course, this is a two-way street, isn't it? Because there seems to be an aspect of Romans chapter 13 that is absolutely conditional. Sadly, earthly rulers don't always comprehend or they simply ignore the fact that they are part of something that is God-ordained. Paul makes it clear that the governing authorities established by him are meant to serve the purpose of protecting the good and punishing the evil. The ruling authorities that refuse to do this, who would rather punish the good and protect the wicked, are failing to meet the standard that God established. However, that doesn't mean that God won't still use them to accomplish his divine will, and and that doesn't seem to change the fact that we are to submit. Unless, of course, our allegiance to God's authority is threatened. I think it's important to understand what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not commanding the Christians in Rome to become Roman patriots. It's not what he's commanding. There is a difference between submission and allegiance. When Paul said, be subject to the governing authorities, he was not saying, pledge allegiance to to your country, to Rome, or, or give your life to the Caesar. Remember how Peter refers to Christians. He calls them aliens and strangers. Your your version may use pilgrims or sojourners. You can't be a stranger in a foreign country, or you can be a stranger in a foreign country, yet still be subject to the government of said country. I've been on mission trips to places like Mexico City and, and to La Palma, El Salvador, and before those trips, we would have several meetings And in those meetings, we would talk about the culture. We would talk about, you know, items to bring and all that. But we also talked about some of the, you know, the cultural differences. We even talked about some of the laws that we were to obey that were different from ours. And, you know, when we landed in Mexico City or or La Palma, El Salvador, and we got off that plane, we were expected to be amenable to those laws. We couldn't claim ignorance. We were expected to follow the laws of that land. But that didn't mean that I was giving my allegiance to Mexico or El Salvador Daniel was an alien or a stranger in a foreign land. Actually, he was a captive in a foreign land. And Daniel illustrates beautifully the sentiment that Peter and Paul are driving at. Daniel and his friends didn't fuss about the classes they had to take. They didn't fuss about the change in name. I'm sure they didn't like it, but they were willing to concede those things. Those things were not of most importance to them. However, when it came to compromising their loyalty to God, they would have none of it. That's where they drew a line in the sand. In Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, it reads, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. So the Babylonians could change the setting. They could change Daniel's education. They could change his name, but they couldn't change his character. When your heart belongs to God, you can live unstained in Babylon. 
Notice how Daniel handled the situation. After resolving to not defile himself with the king's choice food, he didn't go on a hunger strike or, or protest in radical fashion. Instead, he sought out the commander of the officials and he respectfully shared with him his dilemma. And the commander feared for his own life, of course, I mean, because his neck was on the line. What if the young men became malnourished and sickly because they refused to eat? It would be his neck on the chopping block, right? His head on the chopping block. But Daniel said, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. Daniel had full confidence in his 10-day miracle diet. He was completely convinced that God would sustain him and his friends and keep him healthy. And that, of course, is precisely what happened. Now, we go to Jeremiah chapter 29 and beginning in verse 4, this is what we read. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. And plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. So God tells the exiles, the aliens and strangers in a foreign land to just settle in, build houses, start a family, work the land, settle in because you're going to be there a while. He even commands them to pray for the welfare of the nation that was enslaving them. Why? Because God was using this evil nation to bring them into compliance. God's not saying that his people should take on their gods or commit unrighteous acts. That's what landed them there in the first place, right? What he's telling them to do is to live in submission when it's difficult. And that's what Peter's commanding as well. Much of 1 Peter is dealing with persecution and how to handle it. So Peter says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Paul's words are, a people who were, Paul's words, uh, are to a people who were living under an oppressive government. I should say Peter's words. These are words to aliens and strangers. This world was not their home. They were just passing through. They were living under an oppressive government. His words are very similar. Every person to be in, submi in submission to the governing authorities, it's, it's very similar to what Jeremiah told the captives in Jeremiah 29. All our obedience should be for the Lord's sake. All our submission to earthly authority is limited to the lordship of Christ, but it's also an express expression of our submission to Jesus' lordship. You know, it's hard to be a, a pilgrim and a patriot at the same time. You've probably figured that out. But as I said in the beginning of this lesson, Submission may be the hardest concept in the Bible for us to learn and practice. It's especially hard when you feel overtaxed, when your taxes are going to fund things that you don't agree with, when the leaders are crooked and corrupt, and when the laws seem to make no sense. And while I am not saying don't vote or don't be involved in politics because it really doesn't matter, don't worry about the things of this world, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this. Remember that you are a pilgrim. You are an alien or a stranger. Don't ever forget that. 
this kingdom that you are a part of right now that may be oppressive, that maybe you don't agree with the government, maybe there's some things about it that you would change if you had your way. In the end, it will not stand. In the end, all evil will be vanquished. One day we will rule and reign with the king. We will dwell with him forever. So in the meantime, hold on. Wait patiently. Trust in the Lord and do good. Thank you. Have a great week, everybody.